immortal, invisible. Because he's invisible, we, we, we labor in the Word of God to understand how it is we properly worship and, and glorify our great God. We're, we are in Romans chapter 5. And uh, really primarily our focus today is on the topic of Christian hope. Christian hope. Romans 5. We were speaking about hope in tribulation. Verse 2 says... Rejoicing, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, justified by faith in Christ, and given access, we're, we're made to know of and be able to enter into a place where we stand. It's called grace. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what it said. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. And if you notice the two uses of the word glory here, they, they, they almost seem to be opposites. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God is the kind that, that people joyfully anticipate, the, the, the beauties and the glories and the wonder of, of the courts of God in heaven, the, the, the majesty and the beauty of this place of pure righteousness and, and wonder and all of our gospel hopes materialized. We rejoice in the hope and the glory of God and His goodness and His richness and His generosity. And not only that, but we glory in tribulations, knowing tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Two drastically different kinds of glory, I would say. The glorying and tribulation is not the same thing as, as rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Or, or are they? Or are these things more closely related than we, we realize? It's important for your knowledge of, of God's glory, your knowledge of tribulation, your knowledge of the Word of God that, to affect your mind and your thinking about what a Christian life is, where, where we're stepping into the realm of what it means to live the Christian life. We call it sanctification. Getting saved because you heard the gospel and you heard of the condemnation of sin and the offer of forgiveness in Christ. The, the born-again person begins a life as a son of God and, and they begin a life of renewing their minds, understanding who they are and who God is. It's a lifetime of having our mind confronted and changed with the truth of God's word. And it's full of things that are a little challenging to comprehend, glorying in tribulation. 
it closed. As we were reading and studying this last week, hope does not disappoint. And, and honestly, that's almost an, the opposite of intuitive. When you hope for this or that, you're, you're hoping for uh, a good used car. When you buy your used car, you're hoping for a, a raise. You're hoping for a, a nice dinner on your birthday. You're, you're hoping for a, a nice, easy summer and your house doesn't burn down and, and things go the way you, you're, you're hoping for. This hope here doesn't disappoint. It's, it's, it's a strange pairing of words. I, I, I believe that there is something underneath this, the, the, the kind of disappointment in mind here we need to get our minds around because we're speaking about this hope at the end of tribulation. Tribulation is the thing on the front end of this thing. Tribulation, Christian tribulation in particular. And, and, and make sure you... Make a distinction in your own mind about what kind of tribulation is in view here. Christian tribulation, the kind of tribulation you will endure or have because you have been born again and you own and you live and you possess Christian convictions and ideas. Everybody faces tribulation of of varying kinds. This is most specifically and particularly Christian tribulation. Leads to patience, leads to character, leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint, he says. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and God has given to us. The King James speaks about the disappointment. Hope does not disappoint, his new King James. King James says, hope maketh not ashamed. There's, there's no shame in this hope. This hope isn't disappointing. These these two words you might not think are the same. Disappointed and ashamed seem like different words. They come from one single original word in the original language. And so there's some breadth of meaning and we're going to work on understanding the, the meaning of this. Hope is the main subject. Hope is the subject that that flows out of Christian tribulation. Christian tribulation produces hope. When when tribulation leads to patience or endurance, and endurance leads to character or experience, so it's a pair of words we're finding, okay, experience and experience, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. The subject is hope. And it's grounded in the Spirit's pouring love into the believer's heart. There is this objective thing God does. God pours His heart. It's a work God does. It's the, it's the Spirit coming into the heart of a believer, giving the Christian hope. And hope without shame, hope without disappointment is connected to the love of God. And, and this is where the passage goes down a path of some illustration and some explanation from verses 6 forward. And this is where we're going to work on increasing our knowledge and our understanding of Christian hope and the reliability and the greatness of Christian hope here this morning. Verse 6 says, For when 
That's that's an indication when, when he when he begins at four, you you know we're we're connected to something up there still, right? It's we're in an argument here. We're in the middle of him making a case for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Hope doesn't make you ashamed for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, sinners there contrast with that righteous man. Scarcely for a righteous man would one dare to die. But here you see, while we were still sinners, you're not that righteous man that was referred to up there. You're the sinner that's mentioned here. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So here is this initial argument made that we read and studied last week, tribulation, the tribulation argument that results in hope that doesn't disappoint or that doesn't leave you ashamed for, for it begins in verse six. Here, here goes the argument. Here is how he makes an even stronger point of the point already made. I want to think about the letter ashamed with you for a moment that he refers to. Hope does not disappoint. Hope does not leave us ashamed turns out that this is kind of an interesting theme to the gospel bound up in the word ashamed or in this idea of shame. Paul introduced the letter to the church in Rome saying, I am not ashamed. We, we pondered on that a little bit when we hit that in the beginning. That's in verse uh, 16, chapter 1 to 16. Look at that. I just want you to notice this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For in it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. He said, look at Romans 9.33. He hits it again. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Interesting. Verse 5 said, Hope does not bring shame. Why is there so much speaking about shame in association with the gospel? Romans Chapter 1, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, all speak the same way about 
No need for shame in the gospel. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So go toward the end of your Bible and find the book of 1 Peter and look at chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 6. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture. This is Peter speaking, okay? This isn't Paul's concept of, of, of pondering shame. Peter says, Therefore, it is contained in the Scripture here in verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, this is Christ, the chief building block of the temple of God under the new covenant age, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The Christian is a person who has been justified. That's kind of how this ending of chapter 4 and chapter 5 have, have picked up all of their uh, Import. This is the main thing happening in, in 4 and 5 is explaining justification and the, the fruits of justification, the blessings of justification. The Christian is instructed that he glories in tribulation and he's told that his hope will not disappoint. The gospel, which properly understood and properly believed, when, when you get the gospel when you can see its various contours and pieces in the right place, it's meant to give the Christian a powerful and joyful faith. The, the, the faith takes on these characteristics, power and joy and, and a confident fixation on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I mean is, is, is you're bearing like a, like, like, like a navigational type of thing. When, when the Christian is properly oriented to Christ, his life has a power that's fixed on Christ and has and knows a joy and a hope that is rested on Christ. So is there a threat or is there an argument being made against Christians that ruin or threatens to ruin Christian hope? Is there something that is just beneath the surface here? And, and, and I'll give you, uh, 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 I'll tell you the answer is yes, it's shame. Shame sneaks in and threatens this confidence and this joy in Christ. Think about shame and shame's effect or impact on a Christian's comprehension of the gospel and what it means to how they go about living or thinking about their faith. Christian tribulation. Maybe the first one a Christian faces is when he tells his family members that he has been converted. He has been born again. She has come to understand her own sinfulness, her own need of a Savior. The Christian conversion is something that when, when somebody is born again, they want to tell people about it. They're, they're, they're surprised. They're, they're excited. And so they're telling maybe their mom or their brother or sister about their forgiveness of sin and, and their new Lord. 
And some of these people that you tell may mock your unwillingness to, to watch certain kinds of movies anymore. And, 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 and I'm not speaking about it in the religious sense. When, when you're converted, when you're born again, there are things that you were doing last week you just don't want to do anymore. You, you know that that would be offensive to your Lord and you, and you just drop them off and, and you will find your family members or close friends mocking you for your unwillingness to listen to the same music even that you listened to last week. They may belittle your need of a Savior. They may say disparaging things or they, they may look at you funny to let you know they, they think you've somehow lost the esteem you had last week. They may express their offense that your choice to follow Christ means that what you were doing last week wasn't good enough for you. What do you mean you become a Christian? Weren't you a Christian last week? Now, that's the kind of thing that happens in a religious family, you know? It's like we've been raising you right, we've been teaching you right. And you say some, well, I, I got saved. What do you mean you got saved? And you find this, I mean, honestly, for me, it was an unexpected kind of conflict where people begin to ask these un unkind questions meant to highlight your foolishness and your weakness and your, your wrongness. Christian trials, at least on the surface, they, they don't seem to be a happy thing to experience. They, they, they put pressure on you. They're uncomfortable. You find previously comforting relationships are now antagonistic. And now, as a person who has begun to express your faith in Christ, you're left out of certain kinds of invitations. People don't want to be around you in the same way they wanted to be around you a week ago. Or maybe they speak about you just out of your hearing in disapproving ways, sometimes to your face. They shame you. You begin to lose some of the comforting relationships and friendships that you have. And then you begin to fear loneliness and unhappiness and loss. This is the, the, the way I typically try to explain this is here is where you experience the world threatening you with loss for following Christ. The world begins to tell you what a loser you are, how weak you are, how, how, how you have rejected them because now you're following Christ and you are experiencing these losses, you are experiencing these threats of loss. This is a trial. The world promised back then and promises now joy and friends and approval if you go along with them. And at that point, when these things begin to come into focus for a new believer or, or a believer who's going through a, a trial like this, you can face a trial like this at, at any time, Christ's 
way, standing in our Lord's path, walking in our Lord's ways, speaking our Lord's truths, seems foreboding. You don't want to say it. You don't want to go where you know the Lord would have you go. You don't want to say or do what the Lord would have you do because it's going to bring this experience of of your friends being disappointed, of your of your parents or your sibling rejecting you. This begins to threaten shame. It begins to have this dynamic of, oh, I don't want to do that. I can't endure that. Well, verses 3 and 4, which we already read, but, but 3 and 4 speaks to this. It says, we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces endurance, or knowing that tribulation produces experience. When you experience this, it produces endurance, it produces experience, it produces hope. That's what 3 and 4 were teaching us. It happens objectively by your knowledge of God's words, by you reminding yourself of God's words, by you coming to church, by you coming to Sunday school, by you memorizing scripture. Words. God's words speak to the heart who is looking at this foreboding scene or who is feeling this uncomfortable feeling. Words like... John 3.16 If you believe in me, you will never die. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever should believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, I believe the Lord Jesus. The words of God turn the focus of your self-pity away from these people and these circumstances that are doing this to you. They turn your your heart and your eyes to what? The Lord Jesus and His promise of life. Or Matthew 16, 24, take up your cross and follow me, the Lord Jesus said. The Lord Jesus told those who were pondering discipleship, pondering, what do we think of the gospel? What do we think of the Lord Jesus? Take up the cross and follow me. They, they read these words and, and they're reminded, well, the Lord told me to be ready for this. The Lord already explain that this is a reality of of knowing who the Lord Jesus is and walking with him. I I shouldn't be startled. I shouldn't be too unnerved here. Let's, Let's remember what's true here. Matthew 28 says, make disciples and I will be with you. Obviously, I'm I'm seriously uh, summarizing these passages. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age, he said. So did, did the Lord speak to you and direct those who have come to know justification? Did he direct them to wallow in the bath of worldly affection and praise? No, he said, I've called you to be busy and be about my work of making disciples and I will be with you. So the, you, you're reminded of this as a disciple. You're, you're taught this as a disciple. You endure as you are experiencing the threats of the world in contrast with the power of God's word to redirect your steps, to redirect your attention, to redirect your focus to 
What is my Lord asking of me? What am I for? What am I doing? You change where you're looking. You change what you're thinking about. Hebrews 10.39 is one of my favorite passages. The, The world shouting its threats at you or the world threatening to take away its favors from you your mother or your sister or whoever it is who is is doing this Hebrews 10:39 closes with these words says we are not of those who shrink back to destruction in other words you've 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 seen the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard the proclamation of of your offer of forgiveness of sin. You've repented from sin. And with joy, you have begun to follow the Lord Jesus. And then these attacks come. These trials and tribulations come. You're you're walking with the Lord. and, And we read these words here in the book of Hebrews. And he says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. And and they go straight into Hebrews chapter 11, which is the faith chapters. These these great men and women, many of them unnamed, who endured and did ABC because of their faith and hope and love of Christ. They endured horrible tribulation and persecution because of their walk with him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who believe in the saving of the soul. What does the word of God say to a man who has experienced justification and is learning to patiently endure and experiencing not only the hostile uh, threats and and, and the taking away of, of favors and affection, we are learning hope. We are learning hope by the word of God that replaces the world's threats and, and emptiness with his means of, of understanding who we are focused on today, how we walk with Him today, what we expect from Him today. Christian hope is, is built and, and grounded and, and not only established, but built up, fortified, in his word and in the community, in the congregation of Christian men and women speaking the truth, one to another in love, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. As we help one another to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, encouraging each other in the Lord. Looking to Christ according to the words of Christ that have been given for us, walking with Him, we grow strong in our faith. But this thing called shame, or this thing that you have experienced in various ways, shame, it it threatens and and it plants seeds of unbelief. It, It causes you to question. It causes you to doubt But the Word of God reminds you and I, we're we're analyzing this passage, that Christ, past, present, and future, is the strength of the Christian. It's the hope of the Christian. And, and, And Paul gives this very interesting argument for it. For when we were yet without strength. So, tribulation, patience, experience, Hope. 
undisappointing, unashamed hope. How, how do you know? Why do you say that? Well, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's why hope doesn't disappoint. And most of us are like, well, that's, that's, that argument's missing a point or two for me. I need a little more help in this argument, please. And it's right here for us. Christ's death for the ungodly. Christ's death for debtors. Christ's death for those who are lost and without righteousness means they are not inherently beautiful or worthy or desirable. While they were in the status of low, and and, and the scripture even calls them enemies here, when they were enemies, he dies for them. So read with me from verse 7. Let's, let's let Paul develop the point. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there he has explained this point. God's favor and love, God's salvation, his his dealing with the needs of men is initiated in what kind of your own status. What is your status when God initiates, when God takes action, when God begins this work of justification? What kind of a creature are you in his sight? A mean one, a blasphemous one, a lying one, a perverse one, one who does not like the Son, one who does not appreciate the grace of God in the Son, one who would look at the cross and mock God and shake your fist at Him for suggesting such a thing was even needed. This is the status you're in when God sends His Son to die for sinners. Verse 7 says, it's natural in the world for the occasional man or woman to die for the occasional good man or good woman. That's the point of the illustration there in verse 7. For example, soldiers and policemen and firefighters and brave mothers... Brave fathers will often sacrifice their life for their child, for their spouse, for, for another soldier on the battlefield. We see those kinds of things and it makes us feel proud because we, we love seeing a man or a woman who would sacrifice for a, for a great cause like that. It's a noble thing and, and we love it and, and we want to identify with it ourselves. Like, yes, I, I would love it. I would, I would labor like that. I would give my life for something great like that. We, we admire that. But the point of that illustration here in, in 5.7 is saying there, there, there are some men who would give their life for something so great like that. That happens in the world. But God's love is not like that. That's what verse 8 means. That's not the circumstance where God sends his son. 
God's love is entirely different from that. When you think about the mother who's going to give her life for a child or a, a father who's going to throw himself in front of some, some, some cruel criminal for his family. Instead, you're seeing the one giving their life is giving their life for somebody who is the opposite of worthy. The opposite of worthy. It'd be like a mother giving her life for a child who is screaming obscenities at her mother, threatening to kill her mother. But that mother willing to give her life for a child anyways, it's, it's one of these situations where you consider what God has given in offering the Son for sinners. It's the opposite of this thing we see in good men. Christ's death is not acknowledging that, that men are worth His sacrifice because of their character, because of their nobility. Christ's sacrifice isn't because of the greatness of men. God's love moved for sinners is the explanation of why the Son's life is given for sinners. It's an unintuitive death in this way. It's God's love who moves him to rescue weak sinners dying in their place. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, we've read a number of times, but look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, or listen carefully and I'll read it to you. But understanding your status and your place when when the death of the Son takes place is, is what we're trying to understand here when we're thinking about that this is an illustration of why Hope and tribulation is a rock-solid hope. Why is it such a great hope? Well, listen to your status when God gives His life for sinners. Ephesians 2.1 And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In, the other word, in other words, when you were dead in your sins, who did you follow? The prince of the power of the air. Satan. You're Satan's servants. You're Satan's people. You're Satan's workers. When the son dies for you. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Verse 2 goes on to say, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You're sons of disobedience when... The Son gives His life, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But listen, Ephesians 2 saying the same message that we're reading right here in Romans. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together. There's no merit on your part that stirs the love and the mercy of God to raise you from the dead and to make you justified sons. It's not your merits. It's not your beauties. It's not your kindness and your character and your generosity. By grace you have been saved. He, he ends that sentence. Those who are ungodly and those who most certainly face the wrath of God, those are introductions. Romans chapter 1. Ungodly. 
facing the wrath of God revealed from heaven. His life becomes the reason for our hope. Romans introduces the message announcing your ungodliness, announcing your your denial and your refusal of God, your disrespect for God, and the promise of God's wrath. And then offers justification and reconciliation. This is just the, the theme of the book of Romans so far. Now look here at verse 9. So the, the end of verse 8 said, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it says much more then. So if you are in the status of low and lost and despicable and Christ died for the ungodly, much more then. So now we're, we're going from this, this thing of, of one status that's going to increase. It's, it's accelerating. It's getting bigger. It's more potent. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, see it again, how we've gone from the first illustration to now this one is huger, it's bigger, it's more. Much more than having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The enemies of God... You are reconciled through the brutal murder and sacrifice of the Son of God. The horrible thing taking place to the Christ for the reconciliation of the sinner to God. Terrible, helpless people are loved and helped. So again, it's it's not your loveliness that attracted God to you and moved God to save you, you who are saved. The intention of God's love, the work of God's love, isn't for your sweetness. It's not for your loveliness, but it is moved powerfully by God's grace and love and His favor for the elect. It's something that he exercises of his own volition. If the death of the Son works for the depraved and the justification of the depraved in their state of enmity, you guys remember that word enmity? It means you're at odds with. It means you're enemies. It means you don't like him. God's love works for men in their state of enmity and hostility. If he justifies them in that state, then their state changes. When the son is sacrificed and the person who has believed in him puts their faith in him, he calls them justified, just as if I had not sinned. Sons. They're called just. They have then changed their status. They are not these 
these these low and horrible and ones at enmity, they are now, they've been justified. They have been made righteous. So for those who have been made righteous, they, they were given the greatest favor on earth as despicable people, which justified them. Now what does he do for the justified? It's, it's kind of the thrust of the argument. If he had done something so great for people so desperately sinful and dead and needy, what will he do for those who are just and that he has paid for? This is the the thrust of verse 10. Do these ones... Who, who are being taught to have hope in God. Remember, this is the thrust of the argument. You, you have a great hope. Hope does not bring shame. So, does these ones, do these ones who have this hope in God that, that is coming through Christian tribulation and, and endurance and patience, is the kind of hope we're speaking about there, do they have a great hope? Do they expect Kindness and favor of God as as pardoned servants, as pardoned sons? They do. They're, They're people who understand God has given something great to move me, to change me from an enemy to a son. Are they are they shamed into turning their backs on him? When their mother or their sister or their co-worker begin to mock them for loving this one? Or does, does that shame, does that pressure of shame that's coming against them, that threat that's coming against does it cause them to turn their back on this one? No. They, they, they can't be turned from it. They can't be dissuaded from from knowing the greatness of the love that has been demonstrated for them. And that is the point of this argument. Know the status that was your status when God first loved you. And then know how that changed you from non-sons and enemies to sons and friends. And therefore... What is the, the, the will of God? What is the love of God to sons and friends? It is a great, great, hopeful love. It is a great source of Christian joy. We're not ashamed. We're not weakened by these threats of shame. We fix our eyes on the Savior. We fix our eyes on the love of God that has been demonstrated to you and I by this God who, who knows all of your sinfulness better than you know it yourself. If you don't know and understand this, if you've never thought about this in this way, Your standing in the grace of God is contingent on your repentance of your sin and your state of being an enemy with Him. Your, your, your place and your standing before Him being 
in enmity or being in grace is contingent on your love of your sin or your recognition of the great work of grace that has been made for sinners. God, through the Lord Jesus, speaks to man and he says, repent of your sin, follow me, believe in the Lord Jesus for the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's love and righteousness are yours by faith in Christ. The gospel is such an uncanny exchange of of, of wickedness and sinfulness for righteousness and grace. This illustration here in the, in the middle of the book of Romans should help you to see why Christian hope is hope for the justified. And hope for the justified is of an entirely different kind of any other hope. Because your, your status before the God of righteousness and perfection is one of righteousness because you stand in the righteousness of Christ if you have trusted Him. And so hope does not disappoint. Hope in Christ is a great hope because God is for those He has justified so as we close, we have a song that we'll sing together. And I want to just ask you to, to be thinking of things you have to be thankful for in the Lord. Forgiveness of, of sin, reconciliation, and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just take a minute and worship the Lord together in a, in a closing hymn together.